You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi and welcome to another episode of Shrink the Virus with me, Rob Seltzer, and my very good friend... Steve Allen. I'm now saying it like a football commentator too. <laughs> Steve Allen. Like now you're saying it like you just woke up. Steve yeah. Allen. Well, I sort of did, <laughs> to be fair. To be fair, to be fair, to be fair. Um, it's the 21st of June. It's uh, midday. Big things are happening in the state of Victoria, Steve. Well, they are. We've just, um, so you gave a date stamp just then. I'm just focusing. Um, so we've uh, obviously had about uh, somewhere between about 12 and 20 cases for about three or four days in a row. There's been lots of talk in the media about is this the beginning of a new spike? And of course, um, the Victorian government's come out and uh, changed our plan to um, loosen things and essentially pulled a couple of things back and still some things are loosening up. So, for, for example, I believe gyms are still opening up tomorrow except the biggie is uh, we've pulled back the number of people you can have in a house. It was uh, to five people in a house mm. and, uh, and a few other things have, are not going ahead, like for example, pubs aren't opening up to ser- serve food without mm. to serve alcohol without food. So we're essentially slowing everything down, continuing our state of emergency, and uh, you know, essentially putting the brakes on opening up the community. Which is exactly as uh, we'd been told. You know, if the numbers increase, then we would slow down the easing back of the restrictions. So it comes as no surprise. I guess what's what's been surprising to me is. Oh, not even surprising, really. It's just we're becoming more complacent. And, well, I've, you know, I've seen people, you know, good, <laughs> upright, you know, <laughs> smart people, you know, hugging and kissing, you know, friends and stuff. And, you know, I, I've felt, you know, the urge to just, you know, yeah, shake your hands, give somebody a kiss, you know, the crisis is over. But really, it's not. And this is the problem that, you know, after a while we get fatigued with maintaining all the social distancing we've been doing and we become a bit lax in it. And look, uh, I'm certainly um, no exception to that. But, uh, you know, this is just brought into sharp relief that we've really got to maintain these measures. Yeah, I'm... I'm um I've noticed the complacency. In fact, I've thought the complacency has been overwhelming. And I thought it was particularly so since the news story changed three weeks ago mm. and really world news changed from COVID to Black Lives Matter. And um, since that time, I've just seen people almost forget. I've seen people not doing social distancing. Um, I've been to a few gatherings where people have all hugged and greeted. Mm. Mm. And I'm like, hey, cucks, mm. we're not up to hugging and greeting yet. You know, I mean, as, as, <laughs> as we've pointed out before, I hate hugging and kissing and greeting anyway. So it's very easy for me to remember. Um, but I've seen it a lot. I've seen, uh, I see people in the streets. I've, I, I constantly see people saying things like, oh, hi, and, you know, either shaking hands. And so I think, I think the complacency's definitely come in. And look, I suspect you're quite right that part of it is that everyone is a little bit fatigued by it. Mm. But I also think people are distracted because of other world matters yeah. and they've forgotten COVID. And the other sense that I've got is that people seem to think the worst of this is over, which again, flabbergasts me um 
you know, this is just beginning. We're six months into something that realistically, you know, look, you know, it was always said to be one to two years or 18 months to three years and maybe shorter if we got a vaccine. We're still no closer to a vaccine. So, you know, realistically, we're still looking at about a, you know, I would say easily an 18-month process. And, um, and we're only, you know, we've just ticked over phase one. You know, you and I were looking at the figures and becoming quite depressed <laughs> just before we started recording. <laughs> and they are—they bring uh, matters into sharp relief. Eight and a half million cases worldwide. Um, a half a million people have died from the virus. And uh, that doesn't mean that it's uh, the end of the, the pandemic. In fact, you know, in a lot of places, um, that it's, it, there's an uptick. Yeah, and, and it highlights for at the beginning, eight and a half million people worldwide represents approximately 0.1% of the population. So one in a thousand. Now, Spanish flu went for two years, had a similar death rate, lots of similarities between Spanish flu and this. And Spanish flu ended up infecting a third of the world's population, 30%, and we're currently at 0.1%. Mm. Now, you know, I don't want to scare the hell out of everyone, but, but this is clearly where we're still at the beginning of this. We've still got countries that are, um, oh, like, for example, two days ago, we had our highest world cases. Two, just two days ago, we had 181,000 people reported positive on a single day. That was the 18th of that June world. two days ago. Jeez. Two days ago. So we are still... We are completely still on the up path of this. We are, have not plateaued worldwide. We've got countries like Indonesia, our nearest neighbour, uh, doing hardly any testing. And clearly the virus is completely out of control. They've got no testing and they've basically got their hands in their pocket. They've had some bizarre things. You know, uh, you know they clearly had a bad response. Early on, their health minister was reported in the media saying, um, saying prayer is going to protect us or words to that effect. We're going to be protected by prayer. Um, really and you know so we've got we are still seriously quite early on in this in worldwide from a worldwide perspective you know one of the things we talked about when we first started this podcast 16 episodes ago was to be uh i guess to calm the anxiety of people because people were were getting pretty panicky at that stage uh, but i think uh, now, not not to alarm people, but we've really got to make sure that people still maintain all the social distancing, all the sort of cleanliness habits and hygienic habits that, that they were doing three months ago and not to let up. This is not the time to let up. I think Australia's attitude, you know, to take that hackneyed phrase from the terrorism eras, we should be, um, we should be alert. What was it? Alert, alert but not alarmed. Alert but not alarmed. <laughs> well, because, you know, paradoxically, despite me saying, you know, despite us just saying all that stuff about how terrible it is worldwide and how we're very early on and it's not the stage, I'm still a little bit surprised that Victoria's made such a big deal of 10 or 20 cases, um, just to, you know, circle back to that issue. Mm -hmm. And the reason being that of those 10 or 20 cases, around about half each time have been from overseas people. So we can take them out because mm -hmm. they're not our figures. Mm -hmm. So it's really about 10. We've got a population of about 5 million. Um, you know, my sense is we shouldn't be winding back things in Victoria unless our public health mechanisms are being overwhelmed. So let me explain what I mean. Early on, we were worried about overwhelming our hospitals and our availability of PPE. And we that was our early fear. Yeah, no, I'm just, right. I'm just surprised you'd say that, that yeah. we shouldn't be winding well, back unless our hospitals are overwhelmed. Really? Well, that, that, was the, that was the early. No, 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 no. That was oh, the early okay. issue. Right. Okay. So, and we spent 
two or three months building up beautiful public health measures. Each health department in each state's now got about 20 times the uh, staff. Um, we've all got incredible contact tracing. We've got our app, which has um, reached its target, I think, last time I looked, of around about yeah. you know, whatever percentage they're after. Um, so we've got great public health. And now the whole point of public health is we totally anticipate over the next two years we're going to have various little outbreaks and we want our public health to be able to jump on top public um, trace all the public who are at risk, quarantine the people who are at risk and let the rest of the community go about its business. That's what great public health's all about. Yeah. And um, so for me, we continue opening up the community unless public health is being overwhelmed. And the public health services can take and contact trace 10 odd people um, in their sleep. And so whilst I'm really concerned at a world level, from a Victorian level, uh, as long as we remember social distancing, and my gut feeling is what the government's saying to themselves is, hey, look, we probably don't need to shut down, but like you and I and others, they've mm. noticed this gross complacency, and so I suspect this um, slowing up is more a slap across the face to the Victorians saying, hey, you idiots, stop shaking hands, stop kissing each other, stop ignoring the rules. If we stick to the rules, then we can gradually, you know, then everything's going to be fine. <laughs> I love it how, you know, um, it's probably about... 20 or 30 uber experts advising the premier you know these like you know professors of epidemiology and public health and then we sit back and we kind of discuss it well yeah well, should we do this should be doing that i that's think there are a lot yeah i think i think there are, <laughs> that's our job to uninformed comment um yeah i think there are lots of factors going into it but you know one of one of my uh real um I guess, areas of ignorance. I have many of them, but a huge one is economics. I just find it so hard to understand the complexity and trying to understand how economics fits into health and what the government's doing federally and state and all that stuff was just so confusing to me. And I'm so pleased that today on the show, we've got Professor Chris Edmund, who is, I mean, <laughs> he's a very, very intelligent um, uh, uh, man Um I mean, his CV, his CV alone, um, yeah, his CV alone is just quite incredible. But he's going to explain to us some of the basic factors that go into economic decision making and, you know, and, and some of the, the basic principles as well. Tell us about him, Sam. So he's a professor of economics at the University of Melbourne. And he's you would have seen him or heard him in the news because he's been a significant contributor to the yeah. debate around the economy during the pandemic. He was one of the signatories to that. You might remember there was an open letter from 265 Australian economists essentially saying, don't sacrifice health for the economy. And his background, his main research interests are macroeconomics, international economics, perfect for this, and information economics. And uh, before coming to Melbourne, he was assistant professor of economics at the Stern School of Business in New York University. And he actually did his PhD in uh, economics at UCLA in 2004, which he will tell us a little bit about in the interview. And he's the first Fulbright scholar we've had on the show. Yeah, Fulbright Scholar. That's pretty much the US equivalent of a Rhodes, Rhodes Scholarship. Scholar. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a big deal. That's, that's a very big deal. Okay. Let's why, didn't we apply, why didn't we apply for Fulbright Scholarship? The only reason we didn't get one is because we didn't apply. Clearly. Yeah. Well, also, you know, we weren't even in the... It, it, they wouldn't even let us apply for the instructions on how to apply. <laughs> you know, they basically said, you guys, stick to your little local universities. Don't, please don't come out of Australia. Please, please stay there. Stay in Victoria, in fact. Which is what we did. Okay, let's, let's head across to the interview now. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. G'day, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks. Great to be here. 
It's good to see you. Uh, you must be having a pretty busy schedule. You must be as busy as an epidemiologist. I'm not, no, I'm definitely not. No, no, I'm only busy marking and like getting through the the end of what has been an extremely unusual semester. So oh, it's it's, ex- like, it's um sort of yeah, it's exam and marking time at universities, isn't oh, it? It's it is, semester, but it's, everything's yeah. online and everything is like weird, and uh, it's just a slightly odd, odd, uh, you know. You know, when I was a junior academic, my mentor professor taught me how to mark exams. They were all written in those days. He said, Steve, you stand at the top of the stairs and you drop them. The ones that land up the top get an A. The ones that land down the bottom get an E. It only takes a couple of minutes, he told me. You're not allowed to do that these days, though. I've heard so many people have that story. It just scares me. It scares me to think that, like, I I did pretty well as an undergrad. Now I just think it was like the luck of the draw. You landed at the top of the stairs, clearly. All these people were throwing exams down. (laughs) Well, your surname's Edmund, too, so you're an ED, so you're probably on top. That's probably why I did okay, too, because I was an Ellen. You're a Seltzer. Seltzer. How how did you? Uh, Because Rob finished top of his year virtually. How did you do so well, Rob? You must have... I I have no idea. But, but, to the interview, Chris, I reckon... I reckon uh, economics and psychiatry are very, very similar. And I was saying this to you off air, that both make assumptions, both fields make assumptions, and both make qualified predictions. Both try to make people's lives better as well. And both groups, economists and psychiatrists, people sneer at us sometimes. So I want to know, what did you have to do to become a professor of economics? Uh, So, I mean, the usual things for an academic. So I... I, uh, I did economics in high school, um, I guess somewhat unusually, like not lots of people do, but I did and I really liked it. I Until that point, I thought that I was going to go into history, history being like the main thing that I was interested in, but did economics in year 12, liked it, sort of switched you know, more into economics. I still kept doing history as an undergraduate, but you know, switched more and more into economics as my undergraduate went on. Um, finished my undergraduate degree. I went to work for the Reserve Bank for a little while. Ooh. And then uh, on to, and I did a PhD in, in the States. So I got a Fulbright scholarship to, to, to study in the States and kind of went and did that. Um, you were at uh, UCLA, weren't you? Yeah, that's where I did my PhD. Yeah. Um, wow. And then and you then moved then, to uh, New York, is that right? Or? Yeah. Uh, after I did my PhD, I was at, uh, at New York University uh, in, um, in New York City for about four years and then came back and have been at Melbourne ever since. Um, uh, ever since that, so sure, that, that's you... like a like a very very traditional kind of academic career. Um, so, did your passion for history play into economics? Like, do you think it gives you a a uh, an extra edge in terms of understanding where we how we get to where we are now? I think. I mean, a lot of people who kind of come into economics because they like the mixture of like maths and social science, and so that they. And I guess I was coming from a slightly different angle. Um, I, I wasn't very comfortable with maths, um, uh, especially in high school. I mean, I, and so that wasn't sort of like what was getting me and I wasn't coming in for those reasons. I kind of came in because I kind of liked, I don't know. I mean, at the time, this was like the, the late um, 80s and early 90s in high school, like, you know, the economic policy debate in Australia was like really raging hot. And I kind of, I guess I was interested mm. in it from that point of view. I was interested in it from a kind of the, the kind of connection to sort of public policy more more generally. And, and lots of people do come, to be honest, lots of people do come into economics from, from that side of things. But mm. So I'm not sure if it was the history, but more the, the history slash public policy angle. It was heady times in the early 90s, wasn't it? With economics? Yeah, exactly. It was really heady times. Um, like economics was like at the forefront of the political debate mm. along lots of different facets, right? Like sort of financial deregulation, labor market deregulation, all, all, all these different kind of aspects of economic policy were all up there. 
Mm. And, you know, Keating was prime minister and like, or had just become prime minister. And, you know, that, that was the lens through which a lot of like the, the debate was seen. Right? Mm, yeah. it was, um, mm. And then we went into that whole free economics thing where, you know, e- economics became super sexy as they wrote about, you know, every aspect of uh, the world from, an, from a sort of an economics lens. But anyway, we better get onto the pandemic. Yeah. Um, the, one of the main things you've been seeing, <laughs> that's what we dragged you in for yeah, on, sure. on a Saturday. Um, one of the uh, things that I've read quite a bit that you've commented on, uh, Chris, is this whole debate that was going on, especially in the first couple of months of the pandemic, about balancing the health risks versus the economic risks. And a lot of people in the industry were saying things like, we've got to, you know, measure, you know, what the likely spread of the virus is and how many people could die versus the impact on the economy and how many people could be even die from, you know, poverty, let alone various other economic consequences. Um, And so I guess the question is, you know, are there, is that a real battle between the economy and viral spread? Is it, is it a false dichotomy or is it, is it true? Look, there's an aspect of it that's true in the sense that, you know, whenever we any of the countries that have had a kind of a mandated lockdown have imposed economic costs and those economic costs have human costs. And so there's no doubt that there is an economic cost to the public health response that we kind of need to get like the pandemic under control. But the point that I and others were making was that 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 cost in some sense was you could not be thought of as like separate from the course of the pandemic and that the economic consequences of allowing the pandemic to kind of let it rip was a kind of the somewhat like unfair caricature of the opponent's view that that would impose even greater economic consequences. And so, Mm. you know, in a kind of the final assessment, there isn't really a a trade-off between the two that if we hadn't gotten and done our best to kind of get the pandemic under control, that the economic consequences would be even greater. So as we look at the United States right now and we see the, the consequences of not having the pandemic under control, we can understand that the US is going to go through a much more severe recession than we are. And we are going through a recession right now. The state of the Australian labor market is really bad right now, but it would be way, way worse if we had done you know, something more like what has happened in the United States or what uh, has happened in, in, in countries like Sweden, where, you know, the pandemic is being allowed to uh, run its course. I mean, it's not that there have been no restrictions, but the degree of restrictions has been much more uh, imperfect and it kind of has been much more sporadic. So uh, in, in a sense, I see. So in a sense, the sort of the um, big shutdown to stop the spread, slow the spread of the virus um, and the economic co- was is probably the best thing for the economy as well as the best thing for the spread of the virus. Yeah, that's exactly what we're arguing is that, that you should see that as like an investment in this of the future mm. health of the economy. Like like we, we commonly think like you have to kind of make current sacrifices for, you know, for sort of long term prosperity There's all kinds of notions of. Yeah, you know, all kinds of situations, but that's what you have to do. And this was another one. And it's not that, that anybody thought that this was like an attractive situation to be in, but it was like the way to make the best of like a of a very poor set of circumstances. And it it would be kind of wishful thinking to think that we could just somehow, you know, let the pandemic run its course and that um that everything would be all right. It, you know, that is to say there was a kind of a view that we could like Hard to kind of remember that this was actually kind of taken seriously, but it was taken seriously back in kind of mid-March that maybe we could just quarantine the old folk and Mm. they're the most vulnerable. Young people don't seem to get it. There don't seem to be much kind of consequences for them. So maybe we can just quarantine the most at risk and everybody else can get on with the rest of their lives. And we've kind of seen in in, in various countries, Sweden being a prominent example, that that 
you know, is very, very difficult to make that work. Mm. Um, and the consequences of not making it work have been really severe on the human front and, you know, with no better economic outcomes. Um, so when we look at kind of Sweden and compare it to sort of nearby countries, we see that their recession that they're having is just as bad, if not worse, if not slightly worse, um, and that the health consequences have been much, much, much worse. So that's the sense in which people like me were arguing that isn't really a trade-off, that mm. the, the notional sense in which it's a trade-off, which is that obviously it's not fun to be told that your business has to shut down or has mm. to kind of be highly restricted. That, that mm. is an economic cost, but it's an economic cost that you're bearing right now in the hope that you get a much better set of economic circumstances sort of in three months, six months' time. Yep. Chris, I mean... <laughs> Steve and I, and I'm sure most health professionals, look at what uh, uh, the United States has done or hasn't done in terms of managing the virus. And, you know, we you know, hit our <laughs> fists on the table going, oh, my God, this is terrible. And you, as an economist, when you look at what the, what's happening in the States, do you, do you have a similar feeling? Go, oh, my God, how can they, well, how can they do this? I mean, honestly, like, it's, it, it's coming. I mean, there's the health side and the economic side. Yeah. So I was really gratified in a certain sense in say mid-march where mm. i felt like to a much greater extent than i expected the kind of the various arms of economic policy in the u.s seemed to be really kind of like ramping up very quickly much mm. quick much more quickly than we did mm. like there was a period like before JobKeeper was announced so this is kind of like in mid-march where the morrison mm. government here was like really kind of dragging its feet in terms of the economic response given what was very very obviously coming down the, the pipe mm. um and I thought things were being taken much more seriously in the U.S. on the economic front, and but they weren't taking things as seriously on the health front. And it was always clear that, in a certain sense, that that they were really taking a huge risk. And and we've seen that that, that risk. Um, I mean, maybe it's not really the right way to put it because that sort of makes it sound like a kind of calculated gamble. Mm -hmm. But like the 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 combination of dysfunction and has been even yeah. It's been even more than I feared, mm -hmm. right, in, in, in a sense, on, on, on the health policy front. I really just didn't expect this level of dysfunction. And I was, you know, back in March, somewhat cheered at, at, uh, at the, the, how proactive they'd been on the economic policy front. Um, so to, to, to switch tack a bit, to get to what's happening here in Australia, the government has borrowed, is it $180 billion or $160 billion? Oh, over 200. Well, it will be. It hasn't borrowed all these amounts yet, but it's it's on course to borrow something in the order of $200 billion. All right. Yes. So $200 billion. So, I mean, I say this to all our experts. Pretend Steve and I are really stupid because, in fact, <laughs> we actually are. But just, you know, Speak put you in that for front. yourself. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's true. No, me. So, but I don't, I, I actually literally do not understand why, who pays that back? Can you actually paint a physical picture of how that gets paid back and who pays it back well first of all let's understand like who is being borrowed from right yeah. so when the government borrows 200 billion dollars who is it borrowing it from it's borrowing it from you and me and everybody else in the australian economy and to a slight to, to, to some extent borrowing from abroad but you know though what, what is happening is that the australian government is issuing bonds mm -hmm. so these are kind of financial instruments that they're being bought yep. by you know super funds yep from other large financial institutions, both here and abroad, right? And so if you have money in a super fund, you're almost certainly lending to the Australian government. Yeah. Um, as is everybody is, else who has super, right? Why is that bad? And that's, that per se is not bad, right? right? 
So what's happening is that the Australian government issues a piece of paper that says we will pay these interest payments over the next three years, five years, ten years, depending upon which term it's borrowing at. Yeah. And then so it's going to in future in the same way that you make principal and interest payments on your yeah. mortgage, the Australian government is going to make principal and interest payments on those on those loans that it's uh, that it's undertaking. And yeah. right now interest rates are very, very low, right? They're approximately one percent. So the Australian government is basically saying we are going to borrow this 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 principle of 200 billion dollars but we're going to service it at one percent right um and that then becomes an expense in the commonwealth government's budget each year right an interest servicing expense which is not nothing in the same way that your your mortgage payments or you know the average person's mortgage payments are not nothing but they're just one of the expenses that they have to bear um and so what we're doing is we we as a society are borrowing this now to get through an unprecedented sort of economic crisis with the idea of, of paying that off over time over the next sort of 15 years or so. So does that mean there's less money to pay for roads, hospitals, education and so forth? Is that what that means? It doesn't need to be. I mean, it would be if they decided that they wanted to run a balanced budget. So if you just said, look, we just want to balance the budget. And so that means if we're borrowing, if that means if we're spending all this money on JobKeeper and these other programs mm-hmm. in response to the, to the crisis, then that, if we were running a balanced budget, we would we would have to find savings elsewhere. Because yeah. we, but they're not yeah. right. They're not. They're, they're they're blowing out that that borrowing that I'm talking about is precisely them not running a balanced budget, running a, a large deficit. And so, to the extent that they do that, they don't need to, you know, you don't need to kind of crowd out expenditure on on, on roads and so forth. Now, what maybe what you have in mind is that over time to service that interest, they're they're basically. Uh, three ways that you can go. So that you, in principle, you can you can increase taxes. You can do that in lots of different ways. Of course, you can do that in more progressive ways. You can do that in more regressive ways. But you know, you can increase taxes. You can cut spending, or you can allow the kind of the natural growth of the economy to reduce the overall kind of burden of the debt that you've taken on. So that you know, if it was the case that the economy was growing as sort of as it has historically at around one to two percent per year, then that would sort of defray the need to do either of that increase in taxes or that cut in spending to service the to service the interest. So the so the true economic burden um, of that two hundred billion dollars worth of borrowing um, is is much less than you might think. So a, a calculation that I've sometimes used to explain this is if um, imagine I said so. That that two hundred billion dollars sounds like a lot, but but what is it on a kind of per per worker basis? So if yeah. if you kind of had to divide that amongst all of the people in the Australian labour force, um, that's about fifteen thousand dollars per um, per worker. So the kind of the total lump sum of that debt that the uh, that the government is taking out to kind of to provide JobKeeper and these other kind of fiscal responses to to the uh, COVID crisis is about $15,000 worth of debt. And so imagine I said, unfortunately, you now have inherited this $15,000 debt, but you can pay it off over something like 20 years at 1%. Mm -hmm. So the size of that loan is like the size of a loan that you might get for a car. Yeah, that doesn't sound too bad at all when you put it that way. But, but you're going to be 
you know, you're not going to be paying like car loan interest rates. Like the Australian mm. government is like way, 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 way better at credit risk than like mm. anybody, uh, any, any single yeah. person. And like the interest rate is going to be like more like 1%, not yeah. sort of 15%. Um, and so your weekly payments are going to be, you know, something in the order of like $200. Mm. Um, sorry. Your weekly payments are going to be something in the order of like $20. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I got a zero out. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that's, you know, that's, that's not nothing, mm-hmm. but it's not like crippling. Like the idea that that amount of debt is crippling for the Australian economy is a, is, is a furphy. Yeah. It's, so it's tell a, us then. Sorry, Chris, I was going to say, so tell us. So we've bought this car, so to speak. In other words, we've spent 200, we're spending 200 billion or we will by the end. So far, mm. I know it's hard, but I gathered some data came out this week. What's the snapshot of our economy like? Is that money being well spent at the moment? Is it actually working? Do we look okay given where we are compared to other countries? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So in absolute terms, things are pretty bad. So we have seen like, a relatively rapid um, loss of jobs. We've seen extremely rapid shrinking of like the typical number of hours that, that workers um, uh, are working. Not just in kind of like the, not just in terms of like the no, total number of hours that, that have, have 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 been lost, but the rapidity. Uh, with which like the economic crisis has hit the Australian economy is unprecedentedly fast. So even in, in the past when we've gone into recession, it takes like something like a year to 18 months to kind of go like over the edge before you kind of hit like hit rock bottom, so to speak. But we've gone like down so fast compared to sort of like the 1991 recession, for example, or the early 80s recession. So things are really bad. They are not perhaps as bad as we feared that they would be in mid-march yeah so we have so far as we can tell from the the data that's come to hand between mid-march and and now although things are really really bad they are not perhaps as bad as we feared um three months ago Hmm. so i don't know if you want to think of that as a silver lining the other kind of silver lining is it's probably not going to be the recession that we are going to go through is probably not going to be nearly as severe as in other countries that are struggling much worse with the, with even getting the pandemic under control. So as we were talking about earlier, kind of getting the pandemic under control is like is like a precondition to an economic recovery. There's no economic recovery until the pandemic is is like tightly controlled. Mm. What about in comparison to our last sort of recessions? And I'm thinking GFC, which I know we didn't really have one, and then back in the early 90s. How's it sort of comparing at this stage? It is definitely going to be much worse than the GFC. So as you as you were alluding to, we didn't Australia, unlike you know, most of the developed world, didn't go into a recession in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. We had a we had a, like a slowdown. We had unemployment did rise, but we didn't have like an active contraction of the economy of, of the kind that economists usually have in mind when they when they use the word recession. The kind of the the ninety one recession is probably a better comparison, where then unemployment went over. Um, briefly over 11%, we would probably be looking at unemployment of about 11% right now, except that the functioning of programs like JobKeeper is making traditional measures of things like unemployment a little bit hard to interpret. So the current ABS headline unemployment number is, is, is just over 7%. But I think most people think that if we were if we didn't have these programs operating, that unemployment would be probably something more like 12% right now. 
and that that difference is kind of like a between like the headline number that you would look up if you just like take the ABS numbers at, at, um, off off the website and what it would have been absent those those programs. Right. That's probably a, a fair indication of like the severity of the recession right now, and it's probably going to be another few months before we know just how 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 rough it's how rough it's going to be. But as I was saying, it's probably as far as we can tell, not quite as bad as we were predicting, um, say in mid March. So. Yeah. yeah, Chris. On that point of, of, of predictability, um, how sure are you when you when you make these predictions? When you say that you know we'll be able to do X, Y, and Z, and I think this is what's going to happen, there would be a degree of certainty and a degree of uncertainty. How sure are you of of your predictions about the way that we're going and it's the correct way? Well, the, the statements I just made, I think, are kind of like retrospective. Like I, 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 I'm looking at think the information <laughs> sure. that has come in, but. but, but I mean, when it, when it comes to actually like predictive, like how are we going to be going? Then I feel like there's so much uncertainty. It's 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 really just like gut instinct. Mm. Um, uh, it's as I was saying like a, a few minutes ago. One of the things that's like very difficult to know what to make of right now is the the, the suddenness of the disruption to the labour market both here and in other countries is unprecedentedly fast. So even in other recessions, even other severe recessions, it, we just do not see the extent of the contraction in the labor market hitting so quickly. Mm-hmm. And now the only thing that I can say in like, to kind of have some sort of sense of not despair about that is just that the speed of the fiscal response was also unprecedentedly yeah. fast. Um, like for all of the kind of quibbling that we might have about the design of various aspects of, of, of the fiscal response, it has to be borne in mind that it really, like, it really moved fast at a time when it, it when it had to, and that wasn't guaranteed. There, were, like, there was a time in early March when it really didn't look like that was going to happen, uh, even though it needed to. And then, um, yeah, there was a kind of like a an about face. Chris, um, so I, when it comes oh. to predi- just to come back to the prediction point, I mean it, it it's really really it's really it's really hard, right? I mean there's just nothing else to say about it, and um, all we can really do is use some anyway uh, our sense of like what has happened in the past, our sense of like you know what is going on in other countries that we think are as being broadly similar, and and where we do have you know like specific policies at hand and we kind of know well these policies in the past have done this well we can perhaps have some hope that they will do that well similarly uh, like like if we if we redeployed them but i mean it's it's like nobody should have much confidence in, in like in predictions oh, that's right interesting Hey, Chris, we always end up with a uh, final question that we ask everyone, and it's sort of a silver lining style question. It's essentially, what's something that you think you're doing better now, having you know gone through six months of the pandemic, than you were doing before, either work or personal life? What's something that you've learnt and that you're going to carry on, you know, hopefully from this time on? Ah, uh, that's really hard. I mean, because I feel like that there's so many like counter examples where things are worse, um, but Okay, I'll find something. I, I think I'm better at like letting go of things. Like I used to kind of just you know get frustrated about so small things, and I guess like a situation like this can like remind you like what the important things are, and like maybe make it a bit easier to kind of focus on those and like let some like petty obsessions and petty annoyances just like like go. Um, not saying I don't have them, but I have 
less of them. <laughs> they bother me less than they otherwise would. So that's good Aren't to hear. More important, things, yeah. more important things to focus on. <laughs> that's good. I, I, I think when I hear you say that, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I think I'm still a bit petty. <laughs> I need to work on <laughs> no, that. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I, I'm talking about like a marginal improvement. I mean, the level is still pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> we, only, we only need to improve by 10% a year, and then we're, we're going great. Hey, um, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Shrink the uh, Virus podcast. It's great to hear the economic perspective. Um, Rob? Chris, uh, Thanks, guys. as I say, look, thank you so much. We've, I've, I've still got about 15 questions to ask you, but uh, perhaps another time. Thanks so much, Chris, for taking the time out of, of your weekend. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Cheers. 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 So that was our interview with Professor Chris Edmund, Professor of Economics at the University of Melbourne. Great bloke. And, um, and of course, again, we thank him very much for joining us. Um, now, if you're enjoying the podcast, and even if you're not, what the heck, don't forget to tell your friends and family to subscribe and have a listen. We've got a Facebook page called in Shrink fact, the Virus. Steve, you know what people should do? If you don't like the podcast, tell people you don't like to have a listen to us. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, feel free to comment on our Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. And, of course, email us at shrinkthevirus.com. Anything you want to say, Roberto? Steve has a website, steveellen.com, and that's two ways in the middle because it's Steve Ellen. Um, don't forget to tune in to Triple R to our show every Sunday at 10 a.m., and that's Radiotherapy. Do you want to say thank you to some people, Steve? Yeah, our thank yous to the amazing people at Triple R who have made this whole thing happen. Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth and Michael. Um if you get a chance to, jump on board and have a listen to some of the other Triple R podcasts mm. if you haven't already. Um, there are so many rippers that are um, worth tuning into. You can you know, you can really do your whole week's listening, driving around, just listen to the podcasts on Triple R. It's, great, uh, it's a great spot. Uh, that's probably the goodbyes. What do you reckon, Rob? Done. Anything else? Cheers. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we shall be with you again next week. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.